I've recently been reminded how important story is. Your story is your story. It's very important. My story is my story, and it's very important to me. God's story is his story, and we're still trying to discover all about that story, but that's the preeminent story, is it not? Preeminent in the, in the sense that that story simply tells us that he is passionately in love with you and me, and he will go to any lengths in order to make your story and his merge together into one. I just got back from a week in Prague with my son, and through the course of the week, we got to share our stories and our reminders, and we got to go over some history that we had shared together, and his story about that and my story about that sometimes was not the same. And I got to share some insight that he didn't have, or I simply said, man, Corey, I'm sorry, I blew that one. Will you forgive me? And vice versa. And we had a very rich time. Sorry, kids, I forgot to tell you, it's time to go. Ha! Ah. That's what happens when you're gone for a couple of weeks. And, um, and so we got to share story, and of course we're guys, so that took about a day and a half, and after that we got to enjoy the week. Didn't have to do that forever, because that'll wear us out, that's for sure. But I also have a house full of foster boys, and one of the great gifts that these boys bring to me is that I get to hear their stories. And their stories are sometimes painful, but their stories also have some great lines to them and great things that have happened to them and, and where they happen to be at this moment in time. My wife and I are coming up on 46 years of marriage here this summer. Can you believe that? And I'm only 36 years old. That's the thing that really surprises me. But our stories have been united for a long time. It was in, since high school, really, is when we started dating in high school. Our stories are different. And we have a different list of how many happy years those 46 were. <laughs> Mine's a lot longer than hers is. Anyway, but that's really what stories are all about. Is, and I think that the, the theme of this church is to go everywhere with Jesus is primarily an invitation for us to go everywhere and hear people's stories. And when we hear their stories, then we have the right and the privilege to share our stories, but not the other way around. I grew up in the mission field, and I, I still resent to this day that missionaries tend to go out, and all they want to do is tell their story. They never stop to see, well, what's God been doing in this culture for the last 2,000 years? Maybe he's alive and well, and maybe I ought to just shut up a little bit and hear what Jesus is doing so I can share my story with them in the language that they understand. And don't get me started on that. That's not even my sermon today. Stop it before it gets any farther. Anyway, today I thought it would be a good idea for us to simply tell a story. And let's just do what I think Scripture was designed to do, was simply to be a story. It wasn't designed for us to go to Matthew 17 and then to Romans 3 and then to 1 Corinthians 15. It wasn't designed for that. It was designed as a letter or as a story to simply put ourselves into that story and see where we fit our story into that story. So we're not going to do any screen stuff this morning. There's no verses going to be up there. I just want you to imagine that you're whatever your comfort zone for you. If you're sitting around a campfire or 
if you're in your easy chair at home or wherever is that comfortable spot for you. And let's just enter into a story. You can find it in your scriptures. You want to follow along with it, you can this morning. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. Um, and we're just going to sort of weave that story and see how our stories fit into that one. Is that okay with you? Not, you can leave. I'm just joking. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for being with us this morning. We just, just want to tell you again we love you, and we thank you for showing us how much you love us through the words of the songs and, and helping us respond through the gift of your Spirit back to saying we love you too, Jesus. And now as we share this story, will you just uh, live through it and in it and poke us where we need to be poked in this story to say, hey, that has something to do with your story as we create a new story this morning together with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Elijah the Tishbite. Now, we sort of laugh at Tishbite, and we hardly ever pay any attention to Tishbite, but Tishbite is probably one of the most important parts of this story. Because Tishbite, a man from the region of Tish, was a man who was a settler, a man, a Western man, as we would put it in, in American language today, is a guy who went, went west when everybody else wanted to stay east. He went out and he hunted and he, he cleared the land, he cut down the trees, he plowed the, the fields, he did everything depending upon no one for his success. He had to do it all by himself. He was from the region of Gilead, which is the hilly region, so it wasn't the most fertile, a sort of probably like the Appalachians of, 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 of our country here. It was sort of the hard scrabble, or the Ozarks, since we're in Missouri, we might as well bring in the Ozarks to this one. Hard scrabble, never get rich, eke out a living, eat three meals a day if you're lucky, and that's the kind of region that Elijah came from. So it doesn't surprise us that when he was born, his family gave him a name that had no nuance to it, because you don't do nuance when you're pioneers. It's your yes is yes and your no is no. It's black or it's white. There's no gray in between. It's just that way. Have you ever noticed that about how people speak that, that went west? I remember one time I was in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was pastoring a church up there, and I went out to visit some guy that hadn't been in church for a long time, back when people still allowed pastors to visit him at home. And uh, I set up the appointment, I went out, and he's an old, crusty Wyoming cowboy. I mean, when he came and got me at the door and hobbled back to his easy chair where I sat on the couch and, and got acquainted with him, he, he, he bow-legged, he'd been riding a cow his, or his horse his whole life, probably riding a cow too. And uh, in the course of the conversation, he put his thumb, right, his finger, right in my chest. He says, Pastor, have you ever been shot? And I said, no, I've never been shot. I have. He says, I don't trust anybody that's never been shot. Well, that sort of ended that conversation. And at least he tried to have it in. Anyway, that's the kind of people that they were. And so when they named him Elijah, this was a no nonsense. This is who this child is. And the name Elijah means, My God is Yahweh. 
No questions, no deviation, no, no concern, no mamby-pamby. This boy, every time you called his name, you were going to be reminded that his God is Yahweh, no questions asked. That's the kind of guy this was. This is why he's my favorite guy. I think I would like to have been out west doing some of that stuff that he was doing. He comes from this sort of barren backwater town and he comes into the story with all of the fabric that that means. Which reminds us throughout scripture that whenever you're living in sort of a barren, infertile time of your life, almost invariably that darkness or that turmoil or that brokenness or when you're stopped dead in your tracks and you're not doing a whole lot and you're not making a million dollars on Wall Street or whatever it is that you think you should, out of that dark time, out of that barren existence, God creates something mystically, magically creative and awesome. Out of darkness, God spoke into this world and it became light. And they separated things out and they created all kinds of things. But out of darkness came forth life. Out of the darkness of the tomb came forth the resurrected Jesus. Out of the darkness of your experience, whenever you experience dark times, the Bible, the Old Testament calls them desert times, you are living in the desert. In fact, the name desert in Hebrew means the place of howling. It's when you go out there and you scream your head off because the pain is so intense and nothing makes sense and God seems so far away. Out of that desert experience comes forth fertile land, according to the Old Testament. And you've experienced it in your journey, I'm sure. And if you happen to be in the desert right now, just hold on. Learn what you're supposed to learn while you're there, and God will create something brand new within you. Whatever was going on in Elijah's life at that moment in time, all we know is that one day he got up out of bed, he didn't go out to the field, he walked down to the palace of King Ahab, he walks boldly in front of that king, barges himself in, nobody can hold him back, he points his finger at King Ahab, and he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. There's no nuance to that one. No mamby-pamby, let's get along here. Maybe I can soften you up a little bit before I drop the bad news on you. This hard-scrabbled, my God is Yahweh kind of person comes down and never once does he have a prophetic voice, never once is there a message from God that says, Elijah, I want you to go down and give this message to, to King Ahab. This is all Elijah's stuff, moved by the awareness of the evil of his society and by the depravity that he sees around him coming out of this place where my God is Yahweh, the contrast between the two, the unction of the moment takes him down to King Ahab's palace, points his finger at him and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. Not God says so, not till God decides it's going to rain, till I say so. I tell you, that takes a lot of guts. It takes, I don't know what it takes, as I have never had the opportunity to do something like that, and I hope God never lays it on me to do that. 
But then the story says, then the Spirit of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you ever been so moved in your spirit against evil or against something, some practice that is not God-honoring, God-graceful or whatever it is, that you have stood up in your own unction of your own moment, knowing the God that you know, living the dynamic of his presence in your life, and you say, I'm in charge of this moment, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to declare a prophetic word on my account. Did God get all upset about that? Are you kidding me? He wants us all to do that. In fact, in the New Testament, it says, if you don't want the devil in your life, resist him. It doesn't say go get milk toast and pray about it. Just resist him. You got the power to do it yourself. If you, of course, are connected to the power, and obviously Elijah was, but there was no prophetic word that told him to do this. This was just in the moment of his desperate anger towards what was going on in the society around him. He goes down and makes this prophetic proclamation, it's not going to rain until I say so. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, it says. It said, okay, buddy, you just, you just blown the door open here. I want you to go hide by the brook Cherith, and I'm going to take care of you. So he goes over to the brook Cherith. This is all in northern Israel, by the way. It's between Galilee and the west coast there. And he's hiding by this brook, and so he's waiting for God to supply the food because I'm, you know, I'm getting a little hungry here, God. I don't know if he said that or not, but all of a sudden a raven came with a morsel of meat in it, in its beak. Now, do you know what crows eat and ravens? Roadkill. Can you imagine Elijah saying, okay, God's going to supply all of this stuff for me, and the first thing that supplies some food for him is a scavenger bird who has picked it off of somewhere. I don't think Elijah had signed up for that. Maybe he had. Maybe that's what he had up there was raven food every time he turned around. I doubt it. But this guy was so in love with God, so consumed with, with the presence of his master and his savior and his Lord and all the things that he understood about this God that he said, okay, God, thank you for this. Thanks for roadkill. And for a year, he ate roadkill from the raven's mouth and didn't wilt didn't fade, didn't get discouraged, didn't run back to the hill country and get in, or anything of the sort. He just hung right in there because Elijah was a solid man of God. And we're proud of him. And after a year, God said, okay, we've done enough of this. Elijah says, thank you, thank you. What do you got planned for me now? God says, I want you to go over to the coast, to this little village over there, and he said, I've got a widow over there that's going to take care of you. And so on his way over to the coast, which probably took him two or three days from where he was, he's thinking, okay, this is a seacoast town. Probably she's a widow because her husband drowned in the sea somewhere. So she's probably got some good life insurance policy from the guy. and She's probably pretty wealthy. Thank you, God, for giving me a clean sheet to sleep under for a change. 
And as he walks into town, he sees this widow lady out gathering stones, and somehow the Spirit impressed him that this was the lady. He turns to her and said, by the way, would you feed me a meal? I'm really hungry. I've been traveling for several days. And she said, I'd be glad to. But this is, I'm gathering sticks for the last little bit of oil and the last little bit of flour that I have for my son and I. We're going to eat this or we're going to die. But if you want it, you can have it. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't, take her, I wouldn't have taken her up on the offer. I can just imagine the headlines, you know. Preacher at Rolla Vineyard uh, takes the last food from a starving woman. And can you imagine your picture all over the... I mean, think what social media would do with that. It takes a lot of guts for you to take the last food from a starving woman and eat it in front of her. Can you imagine what that was like? Sitting there and they're watching every crumb go in his mouth and if he drops something, their eyes are going right down to where it dropped and he picks it up and he eats it and they're looking at him every second of that, of that last meal that they were going to have themselves. And he didn't back off. He didn't do anything. He simply said, lady, if you can handle this, God's going to make sure that your oil and your flour is sure you're never going to starve the rest of this famine. But he didn't know that to be true. He hadn't read the end of the story. She didn't know it to be true. It had to be accepted by faith. And they both moved in this powerful faith moment where Elijah believed that God was able to do it and he rested his case upon the fact that he knew this God would do it. There's no verse in the Bible that says he would do it. There's no promise he could claim to make that happen. He just knew that my God is Yahweh and my God can do just about anything my God wants to do. And if he asks me to eat the food from this lady, he's going to supply the food so obviously he's going to see us through. Amazing story, amazing man of faith here. And so the famine wore its way out. Another two and a half years, he was staying with this lady, and she fed him and took care of him, and nobody seemed to be able to find him. I don't know if they'd already scoured that, that um, village already. They were already looking all in all the other surrounding countries trying to find him because they had a price on his head for sure. But... For the next two and a half years, he stayed right there with this lady until one day the Spirit of the Lord came to him again. He knew the voice of God, which is important here. If you, if you read the stories of Scripture, it always seems that common, ordinary people like you and I somehow could identify the, the voice of God. We can see God in strange places. Moses sees God in a burning bush. That was not an uncommon thing in the desert. If you've ever lived around the desert, there's all these fires always breaking out. I lived in San Diego for five years, and the high desert around us always had fires going just because it got hot out there. And there was nothing unusual, but he saw something unusual in the common, ordinary things. Mostly God speaks to us in common, ordinary ways. We just got to look and listen. And he looked and he listened and God spoke to him again and he said, okay, now it's time for you to go and bring all of this to a climax. There's been a famine in the land for three and a half years. Now it's time to end it. 
And so, so through a variety of ways, Elijah got the message back to King Ahab that he wanted to meet him at Mount Carmel, which is a mountain in north-central Israel. And uh, he wanted all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, that was uh, Jezebel's uh, favorite priests, and they were all to show up at Mount Carmel, and this was going to be a cosmic battle of the gods. They were going to decide whether Baal was God or whether Yahweh was God, and I tell you what, everybody in the country heard about it, and everybody was there. You did not miss this. This was long before there was television, long before there was 24-7 news. They couldn't just turn it on. This was big stuff. Battle of the gods at Mount Carmel on such and such a date. Everybody that could showed up to see which God was going to win here. And so they all showed up. Elijah set the parameters. Everybody agreed to it. He simply said, hey, listen, we're going to find out which God is the one by which one brings fire down upon the altar. And the Baal priest said, oh, that sounds a great idea. And, and he was the only one standing up for his side. He said, that's a great idea. So they agreed to it. He said, okay, you guys, it's morning. Baal priest will let you start first. All morning long, they went around their altar. No fire came down. Uh, after lunch, Elijah got a little tired of it, and he started making fun of him. He said, what's wrong with your God? Maybe he's on a journey. you got to scream louder. Or maybe he's asleep. you got to wake him up, whatever you do. And so he worked them into a frenzy, and they were getting their knives out, and they were cutting each other. And maybe the blood would bring their God forth or whatever. And all afternoon, they're going around this altar, and they cannot bring fire down to burn the altar. So finally said, okay, you guys had plenty of time. Everybody agrees had plenty of time? Yes, they had plenty of time. So towards the evening now, it becomes, the story becomes ritualized. It becomes very Jewish. Because he takes 12 large stones and he builds the altar with 12 large stones, a symbol of the nation of Israel. 12 tribes, each one. And this was instructed by God when they entered Canaan in the very first place. If you remember when they crossed the Jordan into Canaan with, with uh, Joshua as the head, they brought out 12 stones and they built an altar right there. This was our country, this was our nation, and these are our tribes. And then Elijah had them dig a trench around the altar. The trench uh, held about six gallons of water. And so they, they dug this trench around, and then they killed the bull. They put it on the altar. Now, the Bible doesn't describe this, but probably because it was so ritualized, it was like what the priest did with the burnt offering in the, in the, in the sanctuary. Whenever you, the sinner, came and confessed your sins on the head of a lamb, the priest took over from there and took your sin. The only thing that a sinner can ever do is kill the lamb, by the way. The best thing that you and I can ever do is kill Jesus by accepting his sacrifice instead of ours. 
Then the priest takes over, and Jesus then takes over our brokenness. When we have killed the lamb, the priest takes over, and they do all kinds of things. But one of the things they do is they throw that, that sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering, and they put the head where the head belongs, and they put the body where the body belongs, and the legs and the tail and everything. They put it in order to show that out of chaos, out of the chaos of your sin that brings forth death, we now restore it to order. And so probably he put that bull right where a priest would with the head where it belonged and the body and all that kind of stuff. And then he did the bizarre. He ordered water to be poured over the altar. And there wasn't a lot of water there, but there, you know, it's close enough to the ocean, but I'm sure he came prepared for this one. And they brought up pitcher after pitcher of water, poured it over the sacrifice until it filled up the... Um, a trench around it. He did not want anybody walking away that day saying that it was trickery or magic that did what happened to that altar. And then when they got it all soaking wet and there wasn't anything that could have ever been lit by human hands, he bowed his head. And I don't know what he said, but if it had been me, I would have said, okay, God, now, now's the time to show up here, Okay. I know you've done confusing things to other people at other times and things didn't go the way that we thought they'd go planned, but I got everybody right here right now. Would you mind showing up and burning this stuff down? And I don't know what he said and how he said it, and I'm sure he didn't say all that in public, but as he's praying there, suddenly fire comes down from heaven and burns up that sacrifice, burns up the rocks, and burns up the water. I mean, it's nothing to God to take care of whatever difficulties we put in our way. Obedient prophets, you and I, the best that we can do is put obstacles in God's way. We're just sort of human that way. We mess up all the time. But God is so powerful that he can overcome any obstacle that you and I throw in his way, including a soaking wet altar. And the fire came down and burned it up. And that day, everyone in Israel knelt down, bowed down, and said, Yahweh, he is our God. Yahweh, he is our God. And this amazing prophet of God brought Israel to this climactic place of worship and reverence and surrender and submission. All of this leads up to this grand and glorious climax when God shows up and convinces Israel that he is really their God. But then something happens. Somebody taps Elijah on the shoulder and says, by the way, Jezebel just heard about this and she's going to fry you tomorrow. In fact, what she said specifically was, what you have just done to my priests, because he went down and they killed all 850 of them. He said, what you have just done to my priests, I'm going to do to you by, by sundown tomorrow night. Same thing's going to happen to you. And Elijah, this prophet, this incredibly strong, powerful, dynamically connected person who had brought all of Israel to surrender and submission, runs like a scared jackrabbit down the mountain, goes from north-central Israel all the way to the south, three or four or five days, stops, 
barely in time to collapse on the ground. And he gets down to Beersheba, it says, and he says, I just hope I die. <laughs> what in the world happened? What happened? Why did Elijah fail so miserably at the time when God needed him to shape the Reformation? What he needed now to do is go in and say, okay, this is what it means to be a follower of Yahweh. This is what it means to submit to him. This is what it all means. But why, why now, why this time? Every good story has a mess up, doesn't it? Every good story has a dilemma that has to be overcome. Your life story has stories in it that are your mess-ups, your failures, your dark moments when things aren't going well for you and the times when you thought you should be strong and you found out that you were just a a weak-kneed little baby just crying for help. You're just in a fetal position over in a corner just crying your eyeballs out. You have those stories in you. I know I have those stories in me. I'm never going to share them with you. But we all do, don't we? And the amazing thing about Scripture, of course, is that they write these stories and there's nothing really hidden here. And here is this man of God... Yahweh is my God, and he suddenly runs at the mere threat of Jezebel. And you're saying, why? Well, in chapter 19, it says that when he got down to the south, he collapsed, and he was basically going to starve himself. He wanted to die. The failure was so complete for him, he realized as he's running down there what he'd just done. He's just called all of Israel to God and then he fails at the most crucial moment in, in, in their his spiritual history, that's for sure. And he gets down there and says, the only solution I can think of is I might as well just die. So what did he, what did he not do? Here's a man of the outdoors. He could feed himself. He could, catch, he could shoot a deer or whatever and eat. He decided not to eat. Self-destruction. Have you ever failed so much that you wanted to kill yourself? Some of you have. Some of you know what that feels like. I've never been that way. I'm not that necessarily depressive. But some of you know what it feels like to say, I just, I don't want to live anymore. It hurts too much. My life is going nowhere. Elijah went from Mount Carmel to that in a split second. And so the angel has to wake him up. He's, he, you know, he's, he's weak. He's been running for who knows how many miles down there, probably 150 miles already. And he is dead on his feet. The angel wakes him up and feeds him and lets him go sleep for another day. And then he wakes up and feeds him again. And he asks him one simple question. Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah. There's nothing more irritating than when God asks us those kind of questions, especially in the middle of our own self-defeat, right? What are you doing down here, Elijah? Moses, what are you doing here, by the way? What are you doing out here in the middle of Midian? I need you back in Egypt. What are you doing out here? 
Peter, why are you here? And you, you, the list goes on. Whenever God asks you why you're here, it's usually at the most vulnerable moment of your life. And the angel says to Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah says these profound words. He said, I thought I was better than all my forefathers, but I found out that I wasn't. Spiritual arrogance. There's nothing more obnoxious to this world than you and I when we get on our holier-than-thou stuff and we start flaunting around our spiritual arrogance like we have it all together, like we know everything, that our answers are better than everybody else's answers and whatever. No, our Jesus is better than everybody else. But he set himself up because he thought he was the only one. He says, I'm the only one that hasn't bowed down before Baal. And if, they, and if, he, and if Jezebel gets me, it's all over. Who's going to help these, all these people? Well, what's you doing helping them? You know, whatever rationale he was going on, it didn't make any sense because your excuses and mine never make any sense. And so the angel says to him, well, God wants you to go down to the mountain of the Lord and meet him there. Now, that was another 200 miles. The story implies that the two meals that he got from the angel had enough energy in them that he could travel 200 miles on down into the Egyptian peninsula and get to the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, it's called by several different things, and meet God there on the power of those two meals. I'd like to know what was in those meals. It'd be sort of cool. So anyway, he walks 200 miles down. Now, he ran down to Beersheba to get away from Jezebel, and, and, and that he thought that was far enough because Ahab was in the northern kingdom and Judah and Benjamin were in the southern kingdom. So now he keeps on going south. So he doesn't have to rush now. Probably took him about a week to get down there. And on the way, he's saying, what does God do with failing prophets? What am I going to meet when I get to this mountain? How is God going to deal with me? He came from a hard scrabble place, so he figured that it was going to be hard scrabble when he got there. He figured God was going to do some rough and tumble stuff on him, but after all, he deserved it. He's the one that ran. He's the one that failed. He's the one that didn't set up Israel properly. He's the one that let them down. He's the only one around, and now he has failed. What is God going to do now? God must be really upset. So he gets to the mountain, and he starts walking up the mountain, and just then this, this incredible wind came around. Just out of nowhere, this wind started whipping around him, and he said, oh, God's going to blow me off this mountain. Now I know. He just wants to get rid of me. Just blow me off, God. But he, 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 evidently he's holding on enough, or the wind wasn't quite strong enough to blow him over, whatever happened. But Pretty soon the wind subsided and he continues walking up the mountain and then suddenly the mountain starts shaking with this giant earthquake. Oh, you're going to shake me off. Oh, I see those rocks down below. Now I know what you're going to do to me. You're going to shake me off because I deserve to die. I deserve to bash myself on those rocks. But the earthquake stopped and he's still on the mountain. 
And he goes a little farther and he walks a little farther up the mountain. As he gets closer to the top, suddenly there's this fire breaks out from around him. And he says, okay, God, now I understand. You wanted the worst. You really wanted to get me. Nothing worse than being burned alive, I don't think. The fire. Now I understand. You see, God is going through all of his checkoff lists as to what he thought God would do to failing prophets. He's going to blow me off. He's going to shake me off. He's going to burn me off. But somehow God is going to get me off. But that's not how the story ends. It says when he got to the very top of the hill, it says like a cool breeze came and just surrounded him with its cooling, healing presence. That the God that he encountered on the mountain was a God of grace that he did not know. He knew a lot about this God, but he didn't know that God was graceful to failing prophets. He expected punishment. He expected cause and effect. He expected God to do to him what he deserved to get. But instead, he got to the top of the mountain and God's cooling presence cooled the brow of this hot and bothered prophet who was running for his life. And he discovered a brand new God that he had never seen or heard of or imagined in his wildest. A God of grace, a God of cooling, healing, comfort, a God of concern and care, a God of restoration, a God of renewal, a God of a new story. When he gets up to the top, God and he have a great conversation. Calm. They got to review stuff. They got to go over old stories, and Elijah got to correct a few memories, and God said, well, this is what was going on there, and Elijah said, oh, I didn't realize that. I was thinking, okay, I got you. They got to do what a father and son got to do in Prague, and what you get to do in your life is to tell stories and to find out stuff you didn't know. And in the course of that conversation, God says, by the way, Elijah, I haven't, I haven't corrected you at all, but you think you're the only one? There's 7,000 just like you. You're not the Lone Ranger here. In fact, what I'm sensing, Elijah, is that you're a little lonely. So I guess from now on, I don't want you to work alone. I, I, I want you to work with a friend. So on your way back, I want you to do several things. But one of the things I want you to do is I just want you to go. There's this, this guy by the name of Elisha over here plowing a field. I just want you to go and invite him to come and, and work with you. Because I never want you to be alone again. The God of God is also the God of comfort. The God who supplies the need just when you need it the most. A God of renewal and restoration. And what happened when Elijah went and followed the will of God this time with the knowledge of grace is that he and Elisha turned that country upside down for God. They did the most amazing things in the name of God that you could imagine. And then, of course, you know the end of the story. Elijah's out there one day, and this chariot comes down, and he steps on it, and he goes into heaven, and he symbolizes those of us who will be alive and well when 
the Lord returns. Amazing story. Somehow your story is involved in this somehow. Somehow there's some parts of this that resonate with where you are. Whatever it is, I just hope that you can also think back on that time when you're at the top of the mountain and the cooling breeze of God's presence is there. Or you may need to go there right now and understand that God never zaps failing prophets. He restores them. He loves them. He cares for them, and he cares for you.